BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Great America Show. I'm Lou Dobbs and couldn't be happier to have you with us. Let's start with a big question that's on the minds of lots of folks, Americans all. What's going on in this great land? Our Sleepy Joe impaired puppet president, Robinette Biden, has already provided the Ukrainians an estimated $110 billion. It's an estimate, you know, because no one in the Biden regime wants anyone to know where all that money is going or to whom or how it's being spent or why. Well, do you remember the days when a president was actually limited in his powers, couldn't just order our troops over to Europe and wait till you hear further orders from the commander in chief? Nope. Biden sent more than 100,000 of our troops over to Europe. Lots of our troops positioned in the so-called eastern flank of Europe. Just waiting, I guess, because Europe has better things for their troops to do than just defend Europe. That's apparently still up to us. And yes, we spend all of that money on NATO and the defense of Europe. And again, the Euros have better things to do with their money than to do the dirty work, the expensive work of defending against Putin the terrible. By the way, we haven't spent all of that $110 billion. We've spent, I guess, about $60 billion so far, although no one seems to have, of course, exact numbers. Well, here at home, things aren't getting much better for Biden the blundering. It's pretty clear to most folks that Biden's luck is running out. All those classified documents showing up everywhere Biden's been, his residence, his think tank, that was paid for, by the way, by the Chinese communists, or most of it, they showed up at his house, the classified documents, not the CCP. Well, at least as far as we know. The funny thing is, it looks like the Department of Justice is covering up for Biden as energetically as they attack former President Trump at every turn. By the way, the DOJ telling Congressman Jim Jordan, chair of the Judiciary Committee, to go to hell. Not in those exact words, but that was clearly their meaning. The Department of Justice saying they wouldn't give Jordan any information on the special counsel investigation into Biden and his classified document scandal, saying that just might mess up the special counsel investigation, and we wouldn't want that, would we? So there we are. I'm pretty sure Congressman Jordan was expecting that response, aren't you? Well, meanwhile, the Russian cyber gang Illnet briefly hacking into more than a dozen U.S. hospitals yesterday. And if you feel like last year you were cyber attacked yourself in those midterm elections, we were all getting bombarded by text messages of all kinds in 2022. Call blocking company Robokiller estimates that there were about 50 political messages per phone. Almost 15 billion texts. That's enough to overwhelm most folks. And it will only be getting worse. The Supreme Court in 2021 lowered the consent requirements for political messaging. So get ready for a lot more of those irritating, annoying political messages as we approach 2024. The nation's capital, or if you prefer, the D.C. swamp, is back in full swing now. The Republican-controlled Congress 
carrying out their promises to investigate the Biden regime's scandals, open borders, smuggling of deadly drugs, sex trafficking, President Biden's business dealings with his brothers and son, election integrity, DIMS weaponization of the FBI and DOJ against Americans, and China's theft of a half trillion dollars worth of U.S. technology and intellectual property each and every year, and their worldwide military threats to the United States, and how to deal with the Marxist DIMS outrageous runaway spending and massive additions to already bloated budgets and mountains of debt. The Republican House agenda is long, and it's a tall order, each and every element on that agenda. Our guest is one of those leading the effort, Congressman Ben Klein of Virginia. Congressman Klein is a member of the Powerful Appropriations Committee and the Budget Committee, also leading the Republican Study Committee's Budget and Spending Task Force. Congressman Klein, it is great to have you with us here on The Great America Show. Welcome. Let's just begin with the difficult decisions that lie ahead on what to do with that debt ceiling and the conflicts it creates for particularly Republicans. Your expectations. Well, this is not something new, unfortunately, given that we have $31 plus trillion worth of debt that is uh, increasingly, the interest payments are increasingly crowding out uh, priorities for the federal government. And, uh, you know, we really do need to address the underlying crisis that's increasingly at hand with uh, with our mandatory programs and our discretionary spending. But, you know, this has been tried a number of different ways, whether it's just through a straight increase in the debt ceiling or whether it's through adding some reforms. Uh, the sequester is one of the most uh, famous or infamous ways that they've raised the debt ceiling and, and attached some spending uh, restraints. And uh, it, it ended up saving around a trillion dollars in, uh, in federal spending. And we feel, those of us in the Freedom Caucus and those of us who recognize the impending insolvency of Social Security and Medicare and other uh, entitlement programs, that we need to take some steps to shore those up and make sure they're around for current and future generations of Americans. So we, we are not... Uh, just out of hand rejecting the notion of an increase in the debt limit. We just have to make sure that we put this country on the right track. And just as the Freedom Caucus leveraged the election of a speaker to get important reforms to the process, we're ready to leverage this uh, next step in lifting the, the debt limit to get those essential reforms that are necessary to to putting this country on back on the road to financial solvency and and uh, continued success. I, I I certainly agree with your your motives and your goals uh, and your values in all of this, in in moving to fiscal responsibility. I just wonder about the de the debt ceiling as being the starting point, because I think it's fair to say and correct me if I'm wrong uh, that right now the the 2023 fiscal budget is is baked in uh, the, the the passage of the omnibus bill. Now the debt ceiling we've watched the Republicans try, as you just intimated Congressman over and over again to have a showdown uh, with an administration 
over the debt ceiling, and every time the Republicans have lost. And losing that fight becomes a very big fight. It also becomes a great distraction uh, for the Republican Party at a time when your committees are moving forward in such a, 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 a such a manner as to give great hope to uh, to all of us uh, that you're going to succeed in getting to the truth of so much, whether it is the weaponization of the federal government against citizens, whether it is the financial dealings and corruption of the Biden fi- uh, family, uh, the list goes on. Uh, isn't that a concern as well? We have a long priority list for our committees and the new committee chairman to tackle but we're optimistic that we can tackle this one as well. And, you know, part of the problem is spending is easy, but adjusting your debt for it, uh, spending that's already occurred, is hard. And we might want to look at reversing it so that we have this discussion before we spend all this. We actually look and have to agree to increase our spending limit. It's, it's essentially the same as increasing a credit card limit. You increase the limit on your credit card before you spend it up to the limit, not after the fact. Right, exactly. And, and, and that's the point I was making is uh, this is after a point of uh, both appropriations, a passage of the, the uh, legislation put forward by the administration. Uh, there has been agreement from both parties in both houses. Uh, in the Senate, led by Mitch McConnell, for crying out loud, uh, as he moved all of those senators and another, what was it, nine or ten in the House that joined with the Democrats in passing the the omnibus bill. Uh, It it seems that that fight has to occur this year, uh, but not over the debt ceiling, because to me that's like handing the Democrats a bat, uh, maybe a sledgehammer and a whip. Uh, to hit you guys all over the head for several months, at least, uh, while uh, your time could be better occupied preparing for the fight at the incipient point, which is with the uh, with the budget. It, it's almost as though the system is designed were designed to fail. It's made in a way that you have to come in after the fact to look at your debt, but it's but it's done in a way that actually encourages deficit spending mm-hmm. and adding more to the debt and instead of making you evaluate with clear eyes whether you can take on additional debt uh, moving forward. It's very similar to the budget reforms that were put in place oh, around 50 years ago when the budget committee was put in place. I'm on the budget committee. It's supposed to put out a budget every year. Uh, and, and that's supposed to bind or constrain the appropriations process. I'm also on the appropriations committee, and I can tell you not only has, uh, under Nancy Pelosi's speakership, the budget committee not put out any kind of blueprint or, or uh, guidelines for spending to constrain appropriations, but appropriations would ignore them uh, if and when they did anyway. So uh, the, the system has several flaws. It needs to we, – we need to take action to – uh, bind ourselves a little bit more aggressively, and given the the majority that we have right now, uh, we have an opportunity, at least in the House, to use some of our newfound power as conservatives to, to make those changes, but whether there's an appetite for it anywhere else, uh, unfortunately, I don't see it. But, but uh, it never is too early to start trying. 
Well, it, it isn't, uh, but at the same time, it might be too late. Uh, having the benefit of uh, experience, how would you, if you decide to hold the line on raising the debt ceiling, uh, if you decide that even after uh, all of the votes of approval uh, and you don't use the, it's, it's, am I incorrect? The Appropriations Committee could rescind some of its appropriations under the 2023 uh, the budget. Could they not? Absolutely. A rescissions bill is something that has happened in the past. And uh, usually when Democrat Congresses go out and Republican Congresses come in, we, we look at rescissions bills. Uh, but usually, uh, I think in the past, that's happened when both houses have flipped instead of just one. Whether it would be an exercise in futility, I still think showing the American people that we've spent too much, we need to spend less, uh, we need to spend less in terms of what this gargantuan, uh, two, nearly $2 trillion in spending, this omnibus that they did at the end of last year, with Mr. McConnell's help, as you indicated, is is uh, something we should probably pursue. I I would be for it, uh, and I'll bring it up with the Freedom Caucus. Uh, we meet after first votes this evening, so uh, I think it's a good topic of conversation about how to flex our newly found muscles here in this uh, Republican <laughs> House of Representatives. In flexing that muscle, you have the support of uh, a new uh, Rasmussen poll. Uh, showing that about 56% of Americans in their survey would support uh, shutting down, uh, shutting down the government rather than increasing uh, the debt load. Uh, is that helpful? Well, the poll is uh, apples and oranges because if we miss the, if we don't raise the debt ceiling, the government doesn't shut down. The markets may implode, but the government doesn't shut down. That doesn't come until October. Uh, so I. We will hope that there is a similar uh, similar attitude in October when we have to pass spending bills and, and hopefully we're going to have some restraint on spending and, and go to the limit with the Senate and with the president on that. But on the debt limit, uh, we're prepared to stand firm and insist on some reforms. And uh, if we lay the groundwork early enough, we would hope that the markets we we can put in place some protections at least some uh, processes that will address the debt in sequence so that uh, some of the most pressing payments are made earliest and then we can push and leverage our, our actions for these reforms that are going to be so important the the principal reforms that you want. I, I don't know how many priorities you have, what your agenda is in any negotiation that the White House says they will not have with you. But if you do have those negotiations and make those demands, what would be the top three? Well, I think first you look at, uh, you look at discretionary spending and you look at some caps that can be uh, increasingly ratcheted downward to control discretionary spending. Uh, that's the annual appropriations process for everything from agriculture to housing to uh, defense to and defense is the big elephant in the room. But, uh, uh, you know, we're going to have to at least freeze discretionary spending. But I would argue uh, we need some cuts and consolidations and privatizations and other types of reforms. But 
then on the mandatory, but that's the problem. The discretionary is only about two, uh, about 30% of the budget. The other mm-hmm. 60, 65% of the spending is mandatory spending. And so we need at least uh, some signal from the administration that they're, uh, that they're open to protecting and preserving these mandatory programs for future generations. Right now, uh, they're due to go insolvent in the next decade, and my kids and millions of other uh, parents across this country want there to be this safety net for their kids and grandkids when they uh, come of age. And so they have to be reformed. They have to be changed because at the current rate, they won't be there for these future generations. You're talking about Social Security, Medicare? Absolutely. To shore them up, to improve them for future generations, not for those who have depended on them and are currently receiving benefits or have worked most of their life with the expectation that certain benefits are coming. Uh, well, we're talking about my 10-year-old daughters. I mean, that's, that's the generation that uh, is going to have to see changes to the program. And uh, that may not address the immediate need for the for the uh, addressing our debt or for our deficit spending but at the very least it will send the signal that we're headed in the right direction and may give some of us uh at least some confidence that we're going to make the changes needed so that we can address the debt ceiling you know congressman as as we sit here talking the the prospect of the democrats uh, taking another club to your heads when you even mention the word Social Security and Medicare, uh, the odds go up by about 100% uh, that they're going to win a PR battle because that's what this is. This is a political battle within the D.C. and certainly within the House of Representatives and, and, the, and this uh, great government of ours. I just wonder if you really believe that the American people are going to sit still for a one-party solution uh, to Social Security, the the most impressive and uh, the only successful reformation of Social Security occurred back in 1983 and the Greenspan Social Security Commission. Uh, Wouldn't you prefer to try something like that, uh, approach that, rather than to take on unilaterally the burden of what will be a massive beatdown from the Marxist Dems and their highly controlled uh, global uh, uh, globalist uh, media, uh, who will just you know come after you with uh, everything they've got. We have to present this argument in its proper terms. We have to let the people know that these programs are dying at the hands of Democrats. Democrats are killing Social Security and Medicare by allowing them to run into the ground. And if we don't act to save them, they will not be here. That's the argument we have to make to the American people, that we cannot do nothing uh, because our children and and their children's future depends on these programs continuing to exist. And at this rate, they are being run into the ground by the uh, the willful ignorance of Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and Joe Biden. You're talking to a fellow who agrees with you 100 percent. 
Uh, but I also wonder why the voters wouldn't ask, well, wait a minute, we just had four years of President Trump. He did great things. Why wasn't this another great thing that he did in his term? Uh, we both know the answers to that, but those questions are legitimate to ask on the part of the voters. Uh, and the second is, isn't this a, just a retread of the old uh, Romney-Ryan uh, uh, privatization uh, impulse that uh, certainly wasn't helpful to them in the 2012 election? Well, no one is uh, proposing any kind of privatization or any kind of specifics. And I do like the uh, commission idea that's been uh, presented at the Greenspan Commission was successful the, in, in extending the life of the trust funds. And uh, we need similar, uh, similar uh, willingness on the part of the administration and both parties, because ultimately this won't be a one-party solution. Uh, this will have to be a, a bipartisan process, especially if it's going to happen in the next two years. Uh, and what we really need is for the White House to come to the table. Their refusal to even come to the table and participate in this debate is negligent and uh, and, and contributing to the uh, to the markets getting skittish. Uh, what we will have to have is a, a, a willingness by the administration to come to the table and actually engage in a debate about uh, what is the current status of these programs. Are these programs facing uh, impending insolvency? And once they face the facts, which I think uh, they have no choice but to face the numbers, uh, then they will agree that something has to be done. Now, that's when the real discussions take place. Now, is it a commission? Is it a, uh, is it a bipartisan uh, bill? Or is it something that can't get done until it's further studied? And, and, uh, but those are all conversations for once they come to the table. At this point, we just need them to come to the table. Yeah, it's one of the things, if I may, um, I, I, I would just suggest that this would be a wonderful time for the Republicans as a matter of strategy and tactics to come forward uh, as they turn to the White House with open hands and arms rather than a demand uh, and an insistence. Uh, because we know from, from recent experience with uh, Pelosi and Schumer and Biden uh, that they are incapable of doing the right thing. Uh, the and the right thing I would define as that which is most fiscally responsible. Uh, they've demonstrated nothing but a wanton disregard for fiscal responsibility uh, and a recklessness in the in the budget process. Uh, my gosh, it's it's it seems to me to be a it seems to me to just be ignoring experience, the reality of who you're dealing with. And when I say you, I'm talking about the Republican Party and particularly the House. Uh, these people are who they are, and they mean to destroy you. Uh, these be, these people mean not to give you one inch. And 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 I would suggest that an invitation uh, and a warm approach to first educating the public uh, would be a grand uh, condition precedent to any any initiative you undertake. Uh, because I, I I see nothing but Republican blood in the streets, uh, metaphorically. Uh, if you if you proceed on this on this basis, I, I've I've just seen it so many times, uh, just blow up 
when there are other ways in which I think you can uh, reach your objectives. And uh, and by the way, the creators of this mess are Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, and, and Joe Biden. Uh, there's also this simple strategic reality. Uh, they're on the hook for it, and you shouldn't let them off. Absolutely not. And we have to keep our focus on uh, the the cause of the current crisis that we're in. It's not because Republicans refuse to raise a debt ceiling. It's because Democrats refuse to control spending. And every time they're in power, uh, we end up with these multi-trillion dollar bills. Uh, and they'll point to the last administration and how much the, the debt went up. And we can concede that the last administration agreed to a large amount of spending under both Republican and Democrat led Congresses. And we need to end this cycle of reckless spending to be able to get us on the right, on the right page. Well, I think, and I think everyone, well, certainly not everyone, but I think most Americans uh, would agree with you and uh, appreciate your realizing those uh, objectives. I, I, if I may, I want to turn to uh, you, your view of where the Congress is right now in terms of the investigations, uh, in terms of uh, another issue as well, and that is the lack of accountability for the money that is being spent on Ukraine uh, and the insistence on some members of your Congress, and I'm talking about Mike McCall right now, the head of uh, foreign affairs. I, I mean, basically calling for a... a an open uh, treasure chest uh, in the possession of the United States, whether it's weapons or cash, uh, to go forward against Russia when they're threatening nuclear war. Uh, if you could deal with just those two items. Sure. Uh, we have to make sure that we account for every dollar that has been spent in supporting Ukraine and its defense against Russia. Uh, I've added language to our appropriations bills last year demanding accountability because much of the funding that was going to the Ukraine in that first bill was for NGOs and for non-defense spending, humanitarian aid. It was not uh, specifically for weapons and for tanks and for, and for missiles. So we have to get accountability there. I'm confident that there is a majority uh, that is willing to support that accountability. And it might not come from Foreign Affairs Committee. It might come from the Appropriations Committee. It might uh, come from the Armed Services Committee. But we recognize that uh, we represent Americans and the dollars that they have worked so hard for. And we have to make sure that everyone that has been spent is accounted for. Yeah, I mean, here's tenth of a trillion dollars, more than that, uh, which is not, uh, as they say, chicken feed. And the American people have no idea what it's being spent on. Uh, they have no idea of what is really happening. There have been no hearings on Ukraine and the U.S. Uh, role in it. Uh, we have watched uh, a couple of financial security uh, folks come over from uh, from uh, the White House and and, and say nothing. Uh, and I'm obviously I'm talking about uh, Tony Blinken and Jake Sullivan. Uh, we seem to we seem to need to do better. Uh, 
and I hope this Congress will be the Congress that does it. But there has to be a way to get back to the days of accountability uh, and uh, oversight that is meaningful. Uh, and also uh, assure that the American public's right to know is honored. Uh, Mike, I brought up Mike McCall's uh, name because he talked about the American people need to be educated on Ukraine. Uh, I would say to you, I think that Congress needs to be educated on Ukraine and the uh, foreign policy that we have toward Russia versus the foreign policy we have against our number one enemy, which is China. Uh, this is there's a great mindlessness at work uh, and and arrogance and condescension on the part of any, any uh, Republican right now is unwelcome because we're being used to being ignored by a Democratic Congress. We sure as hell don't want to be by a Republican Congress. And we do have to recognize that our true adversary is China. Uh, the great challenge to the 21st century is uh, China. And uh, we have to make sure that we keep our eyes focused on that. And that's why the creation of this new select committee is so important. Mike Gallagher is, is very clear-eyed in the danger that, uh, that China poses to us. And so I'm confident that uh, he's going to do a great job in coordinating among all of the committees of jurisdiction. You know, everybody likes to defend their turf. And so uh, there are going to be a lot of people uh, kind of uh, chafing a little bit at this new committee and, and Mike McCall is going to be sharing uh, jurisdiction over this China uh, committee as well. But when it comes to Ukraine, uh, we do have to recognize that uh, we have to account for every dollar, that uh, we do want to make sure that, that we cooperate with our NATO allies, but uh, that it's not an open-ended checkbook, that our NATO uh, allies have not lived up to their required commitments of 2% of GDP for defense. And that's a whole nother conversation, but um, that's an important one because we are not the piggy bank for the defense of Europe. That's not what NATO is. Uh, it's about shared, uh, shared investment in the security of Europe and the member states of Europe have to, uh, have to step up along with the United States in any scenario like that. Wasn't it a remarkable statement today by the former prime minister of the UK, Boris Johnson, calling on, quote unquote, the West to step up and get weapons to Ukraine right now and pay the pay whatever price uh, is required uh, to make that happen. Uh, he was talking directly to the United States and those in charge of the of our budget and our appropriations and our treasury. Uh, to open our uh, our our hearts wide, uh, without any participation or proportional responsibility on the part of the Europeans and NATO, as you say, uh, we are we're now in pre-Trump days, in which they are asking the United States to be both the the policemen of the uh, of the world as well as uh, their bankers. Your thoughts? Uh, that's that's. Very true. Uh, they have forgotten all too well the lessons of just a few years ago where uh, Trump made it very clear that those commitments needed to be lived up to when it comes to uh, making sure that they com contribute their fair share toward the security of their own continent. And so I, I 
think that a Republican House is prepared to uh, deliver that message once again. It's, uh, it's important that we stand uh, for the American people and not for the people of Great Britain and not for the people of uh, Germany and not for the people of Sweden. Uh, but instead, we, we look at the situation in Europe, the situation in Ukraine, uh, with very clear eyes. And, and again, as I said, our, our top challenge must be China. We have, we have to recognize that we do not have an open checkbook. We cannot uh, simply spend unlimited sums in defense of a nation in Europe when our greatest challenge is half a world away in Asia. So uh, we have to take all that into consideration and uh, forcing these countries who are our friends in NATO to contribute their fair share is a, an important part of that conversation. Well, we are, as they say, in interesting times, but also complex and dangerous times, it, uh, it seems, at every turn. Uh, we always give our guests, Congressman, the opportunity for the last word. Uh, so it, it, I have really enjoyed our conversation. I know the audience and, and I have learned a great deal. Uh, Congressman, if you would, your concluding thoughts today. Well, I'm grateful for the chance to talk to your uh, many, many listeners about the issues that we're dealing with right now in this new Republican House. It's a messy process, uh, you know, when you first come to the majority, but we're, uh, we're making progress. We're getting everything uh, prepared for aggressively pushing back against this administration, against the Senate, standing up for the American people, standing up for the conservative values that we ran on. And, you know, we've leveraged our small majority uh, and as Freedom Caucus members, uh, leveraged our even smaller numbers for great gains in the rules and the appropriations process uh, and and the like. So I'm excited about the uh, about the journey ahead. Um, it's going to be uh, tough. There are going to be some tough battles, but uh, I'm optimistic, and I look forward to reporting back to you on our successes, our failures, and and the uh, way that we're standing up for the rights of the people. Uh, in the in the new house in the 118th session. Thank you. Well, we have every faith that you will do exactly that, and we appreciate you being here. Uh, thank you so much for your time uh, and uh, sharing your thoughts. Uh, and I want to say uh, the courage of the Freedom Caucus uh, in the bargaining, the negotiations with Speaker Kavanaugh over the future uh, were marvelous to watch on television. I hope that you guys uh, stay with C-SPAN because it was your benef <laughs> were the beneficiaries of C-SPAN in the open process. So thanks so much. Congressman Ben Klein, God bless you. Thank you, sir. Thanks, everybody, for being with us today, and please join us here tomorrow. Our guest will be the Manhattan Institute's brilliant social critic, best-selling author, and one of America's brightest conservative thinkers, Heather McDonald, as we take up race, culture, conservative values, and the future of the republic. Heather McDonald will be with us here tomorrow. I hope you will be as well. She's always informative. Please join us here tomorrow. Till then, God bless you and God bless America.